Welcome to Practical Christian Living. If there is a purpose for suffering, then God would allow it. Just because suffering could be stopped, but God says, I have a purpose in suffering, then we have to stop and go, okay. So he didn't stop the suffering of Jesus because he had a purpose in it. He, he was going to be perfected as the captain of our salvation without the suffering. And, and he becomes the great example for us. Does God allow suffering? Yes, you bet. Why? Because when we choose to follow Christ and we seek to hold on to Him through the dark times, God uses our suffering. Now, we don't like to hear that in the midst of the storm, but if you've been a Jesus follower for a significant time, you can likely say, yes, this is how a faithful, loving God used my trial for good to strengthen my relationship with Him and my relationship with others. With more on why we suffer and how it can glorify God, here's Robert Furrow with Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. Father, we want to thank you for your word. It is rich, it is powerful, it is meaningful. It works within us. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and really help us to walk in it. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The book of Hebrews, not surprisingly, was written to Hebrews. They were Jewish Christians or completed Jews, as many want to refer to themselves today, Jews that received Jesus as their Messiah, that they have completed their Judaism by receiving their Messiah. And because Judaism was a sanctioned religion by Rome and Christianity was not, when they converted and became Christians, now they were part of a group that wasn't sanctioned, then they had no recourse when they were persecuted. If you were Jewish and someone persecuted you, you could take that through the system, the Roman system, and you could have it stopped. You could find justice for what's been done to you. But as a Christian, you couldn't do that because it wasn't sanctioned. And so Christians had all kinds of difficulties and all kinds of problems. When you committed your life to Christ in the first century, didn't matter if it was in Jerusalem or any other part of, of Rome, you could be mistreated as a Christian and there was less recourse for you. And we're going to see in the next chapter, chapter 3, that they were facing persecution because of the Christianity. Now, Jesus said, rejoice when men persecute you for my name's sake. And we always point out that's much easier said than done. That's easy to look at and go, if I'm persecuted, I'm going to rejoice. But as soon as it starts happening, as soon as you don't get that job promotion, or as soon as somebody starts to slander you at work because you're a Christian, or dislike you because of your faith, and it happens, then all of a sudden you're like, who should I tell? Should I tell people? Should I get them fired? What happened to rejoicing? What happened to bless those who, who curse you? And so they were beginning to go back into Judaism. They were beginning to say, well, you know what? We can go into Judaism. We can, we can live the law. We can still serve Christ, but we'll go back into the law. And the writer of Hebrews is showing them that that is inferior that you're taking something that was a shadow of that which is to come because the law, the tabernacle, all of those things were a foreshadowing. In Galatians, it tells us that the law was, a, was a, like, a, like a teacher or someone who would watch a child 
until the parent came along. And then it no longer needed the teacher. And so the law was our teacher until Jesus came along. Then we no longer needed the law. And that there's something particularly wicked about going back under the law. That's the book of Hebrews. So he's showing throughout this book the supremacy of Jesus. That could be your outline. You could just write down the different ways in which he's talking about the supremacy of Christ. He's doing it again here in the last part of this chapter. He starts the first chapter, you remember, with a warning, warning us not to drift away or neglect a great, so great a salvation. That was the beginning of, of the chapter. Now he starts to talk about Jesus and the great work that he did and who he is that did the work. And that is, we know from other passages as well, that it is God who became man, particularly the person of the Son of God who became man, who was one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, and that in all of him, Colossians tells us, dwelt all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily, meaning that he was revealing every aspect of the Father and the Holy Spirit while he was here. And um, this passage gets into it. But as it gets into the reason that he came, so it's talking about Jesus coming to this earth, it talks about his suffering. And it makes a mention of his suffering in a way that you and I would never do of our own suffering. It's interesting enough that it causes us to stop and go, maybe we should recalculate the way we look at suffering. I've titled this message, How Can a Good God Allow Evil and Suffering? Kind of a subtitle, The Problem with Evil and Suffering. This is one of the hardest questions that we get from people when people question us about our faith. If God's good, and just let me read this to you. This is the Greek philosopher Epicurus was the first one to come up with this hundreds of years before Christ. He said, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able to, then he is not all powerful. If he is able, but not willing, then he is evil. If he is both able and willing, then where does evil come from? If he is neither able nor willing, then why call him God? If he isn't able to stop suffering or willing to stop suffering, then why call him God? And atheists particularly have picked this up as an accusation for us Christians. They'll word it like this. If God is all good and all loving, then why is there evil and suffering in the world today? In that question to you is an accusation against God. God's not all loving. God's not good because there is evil and suffering that is in the world today. Now, as soon as an atheist brings up evil and suffering, the fact that they bring up evil, they're in trouble right away. This is why a lot of the high-profile atheists will not bring this question up at all because they want to say that there is no moral standard. If you're an atheist and you just believe that we exist, well, whatever moral standard we have is made up. And so if we choose to live by a moral standard that we find from the Bible, which is a good one, the Ten Commandments, the law, which reveals to us what God, how God wants us to live. But if you say that there's evil in the world, but there's not a, a good God who helped us to know that moral code of good and evil, then all of a sudden you're in a place where you have to explain God. All of a sudden you kind of backed yourself into a corner. And I'm not saying that they don't do it because they do. They say things like, well, we believe that there is a moral code apart from God because we believe that no matter who you are as a human, you should be doing the best for humanity. That's kind of 
That's the morality of an atheist. They're not, and I, and I, I would admit that there's atheists that are humans by human standards, every bit as good as Christians. Just because someone's an atheist doesn't mean that they walk around hating people or, or hating on people any more than anybody else does. We'll kind of put that caveat on there, right? But they do cause themselves a problem when they say that. But there is an answer to that question. And I, and I do want to talk about that today. I want to give you what the answer is to that question. And we find it in our first verse in our text. That's verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2. It says, For it was fitting for him, talking about, again, Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. So it's another one of those grand statements about Jesus. Colossians does it. John does it. He created all things. There was nothing that was created without him, that in him all things consist, and that without him there's nothing that was made that has been made. This is another one of those statements for, look at it again, for whom are all things, all things are for Jesus, and by whom are all things. They're for him and they're by him. He is the creator of them all. So he's giving this grand picture of who they're walking away from when they're returning to the law, walking away from Christ. And then he says, in bringing many sons to glory. That was the purpose of the incarnation. When you boil everything else down, we could talk about him coming, that we might be able to see God, that we might have an example. He's the express image of the living God, Colossians tells us. Um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us that we might behold the glory of the only begotten of the Father, or, or the glory of the Father, quite literally. So there was reasons Jesus came, but the main reason that he came was to bring many sons to glory. That's the idea. And we will say many sons and daughters. Remember that the Bible was written in a patriarch kind of society, talked about male things a lot. It didn't talk about female things. It didn't mean that females were not included in it, right? So it says, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, we know Jesus had no flaw. So what did suffering do? When it says of Jesus that the captain of our salvation became perfect through suffering, it's telling us that this job that he had to do, in order to be perfect in this job, it was perfected in suffering. He brought many sons to glory. He is the captain of our salvation. That's a reference to Christ. Isn't it a great reference, by the way? The captain of our salvation. And in doing that job, he suffered in order to bring many sons to glory. So in other words, when someone says to you, can an all good or all loving God allow suffering, then can, can, can that even be? Yes, if he has a purpose in the suffering. If there is a purpose for suffering, then God would allow it. Just because suffering could be stopped, but God says, I have a purpose in suffering, then we have to stop and go, okay, so he didn't stop the suffering of Jesus because he had a purpose in it. He, he was going to be perfected as the captain of our salvation without the suffering. And, and he becomes the great example for us on a few things. Number one, that God uses our suffering. I, I don't necessarily like that. I don't know if anybody really does. We don't know what the perfect world would be that God would create that would optimize people coming to Christ. We don't know all the reasons God created the world the way he created it. We do know that suffering has come into the world through the fall. 
And we know that God uses suffering in our lives for a few different reasons. God uses sufferings to, suffering to build character in us. We face difficulties and problems and God uses it. God can use all things to work together for the good. So God has chosen to use suffering in that way. We are deepened, we are matured through suffering. Sometimes it's severe suffering. And when someone brings up this question, oftentimes they'll add to it some awful story of suffering. So when someone brings it up, they'll say something like, there was this child and they were born this way, or there's a certain worm that the only purpose of that worm is to feed on the eyes of children in third world countries. And why would a God of love cause that suffering? But they're, they don't believe in a fallen state. They don't believe in a world that was brought to where we are, that suffering is in the world now, and God uses that suffering. God also disciplines us through suffering. Whom God loves, he disciplines. And the disciplining of God is grievous, but it brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that's why always when we suffer, and I'm, I'm certainly, and trust me, I'm not saying that if you're suffering, it's because you did something wrong. There are people who teach that. We're not one of them. But I am saying that when suffering comes into my life, I evaluate. Because if God's trying to get my attention, I would rather him get it sooner than later. I'd rather I would get it sooner than later. Instead of years later on going, oh gosh, I guess I could have learned that earlier. Maybe I could have stopped all of this, you know, suffering that I was facing. And perhaps the greatest reason for our suffering, and again, people don't like this. They don't like when we say it as Christians, is that God could be glorified through our suffering. Paul said that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. That was a prayer. Paul asked to be know God and the power of his resurrection. And we can all say amen to that. We're power people. We like power lunches, power ties, power Christianity. Yeah, we want the power of God, but also might know him in the fellowship of his suffering. In another place, and Paul, by the way, suffered greatly, right? He had a lot of suffering and God could have delivered him, but God told Paul to keep you humble. Paul said, in order to keep me humble, the stone of the flesh has been given to me. So whatever it was that he was suffering from, many believe it was an eye disease for various reasons, it was given to him and Paul received it and accepted it for the work of God. It's so that God might allow suffering and might not stop suffering because sometimes he does stop suffering, but God might not stop suffering in our lives because God wants to do a work through it. Again, if it was my choice, I would opt for a different way. I, I'm not quite as... Um, I don't know what word I would use. I'm, I'm not quite the same as Paul. Paul says, that road of suffering, I want to know Christ in it. If I come to a fork in the road and I can make the decision, suffering and no suffering, I'm like, no suffering, that's my road. But since we're all going to suffer, that God would be exalted, that God would be lifted up. And here we are, we're not playing games. We're not saying in this small suffering you're going through, Sometimes the suffering is deep. Sometimes it's incredibly hurtful. Sometimes it's life lasting. Sometimes it, it is just so bad we feel like we can't take it. Some of you guys are in the throes of that right now. You're in the depths of the, the, that part of the grief. But it's when you serve God in the middle of all of that, you serve him no matter what. You're not conditionally serving God. If I don't suffer, if I don't face difficulties, if I, if I don't have anybody close to me die, if I don't have any kind of illness, I'll serve God. 
But as soon as I've got something going on in my life, I'm not going to serve him anymore. Real faith is I'll serve him in the middle of whatever suffering I face. Job is the great example of the Bible. He went through great suffering, many different levels. And he asked throughout the whole book, why, why, why? And when God shows up, it's interesting that God never tells him why. He never gets the answer to it. It's, it's not a book on why people suffer. When you boil it down, it's because the accuser or the, the um, opposer had a conversation with God about Job and the suffering began. It was in the angelic realm. God and an angel, fallen angel, had a conversation that started the suffering for Job. I wonder how that would have went over for Job. Well, I was having a talk with, with the Satan the other day, with the opposer. And your name came up and I said, go ahead. Job was like, what? What? But when God shows up, God says, Job, were you there when I created the world? No. Were you there when I created the animals? No. Were you there when I created the plants? No. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? No. And all the morning stars sang for joy? No. Do you consider the Leviathan? Do you, it, 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 no, no, no. And finally, Job gets to the place where he comes towards God with a different heart and attitude in, the end of, in his prayer. And his heart and attitude change is, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. God hasn't let us in on all that he's doing. And we, we trust him nevertheless. And so if, if God had a purpose for the suffering of Jesus, and that was a severe purpose and it did a great work, then God has a purpose for our suffering. And I can't speak for you, but I could speak for many of us in here. I'm okay with that. If God wants to use my suffering that someone else would come to Christ, if God wants to use my suffering to bring someone for his glory, if God wants to use my suffering to do something in me that he needs to do, if God wants to use my suffering for someone else, then I'm good with that. I don't want it. And I've had my share of suffering. I know what I'm talking about. I don't want it, but I'm willing to accept it. As hard as it is, and if God's got a purpose for the suffering, then the accusation goes away. Epicurus' statement, if God is not able and not willing, then why do you call him God? Because he, he has a reason. God's doing something. And we live in this fallen world where God uses those things. I still remember when Greg Laurie lost his son, 32 years old, it was probably, I think, 12 years ago now, that he lost him in a car accident. And Greg Laurie saying, I'm going down a road I would never choose to go down. And I still believe. And when I heard that, is before I lost my first wife, when I heard that, I thought, that is more powerful than any other statement he's ever made. He's a great evangelist. Because he says, even in the midst of losing a child, I think arguably one of the deepest hurts we could go through to say, I still believe. I still trust him. And people see that. And it becomes powerful. And God uses those things in powerful ways. So in the assumption and the accusation, it all melts away when God has a purpose for it and we're able to say that. Now, when we think of pain, we have to have pain because pain is our interaction with this world. If you're getting a blister on your foot, if it's not painful, you don't think about it. Next thing you know, you got a hole in your foot. 
You know how when you touch something and it's hot, if you didn't feel pain, you would injure yourself. And this is exactly what happens to lepers because their bodies are numbed by the disease of leprosy. It affects their skin. Their nerves are numbed. They injure themselves and they lose fingers and noses and ears and, and it becomes vulnerable to the disease. There is a disease called CIPA in which you do not feel pain. The nerve cells don't grow and you don't feel the result of your injury. And because of that, these people lose feet and fingers and toes and ears. The same thing that happens to lepers because they will injure themselves not knowing that they've injured themselves. There will be infections that will take place and it is just an, it's a, a disease that you might think you want. That I don't feel any pain, no physical pain, but it's a devastating disease that will affect you all the rest of your life because you have to constantly be careful because you don't have that interaction. I think the same thing is true with the inner man, with the soul. When our soul is hurting, it should tell us something is wrong. It shouldn't just be something that we want to try to mask and get rid of. We, we should know that we've got whatever's going on with our soul, that it hurts. First of all, it's okay to hurt. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to suffer. It's okay to be depressed. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But in that pain, you evaluate where you are. And is there anything that I need to do? I'm not saying it always is. The mind can break just as like a heart can break. And so sometimes there needs to be care for the mind. I understand that. I'm not one of those pastors that believes that all mental conditions are somehow not to be cared for by doctors. I think that's silly. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if you're hurting inside, then evaluate. Because just like touching something that's hot gives you feedback, when you're hurting inside, it gives you feedback. Maybe that will lead you down the medical road. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe that feedback will lead you down the medical road. But either way, you're evaluating. You're using pain for what God wanted pain to be used for. Just a couple examples of this, and then we're going to get on with our text. Joseph, in the Old Testament, the last 10 chapters of the book of Genesis, Joseph is the favored son of Jacob. He plays favorites. Joseph is not the smartest kid because when he has dreams that he's going to be the leader of the his, what is it, at that point, 11 brothers. He goes and tells them, I had a dream that even mom and dad bowed down to me. You might want to just give it a little shuddy and keep that to yourself, Joseph. <laughs> his brothers became so incredibly jealous that they, they kidnapped him. His dad gave him a coat of many colors, which was the coat that selected that he was the leader of them. They were out of working away from home, probably wanting just to stay away from the situation. And Joseph showed up and they kidnapped him. They were going to kill him. But they saw a group of Ishmaelites going by and they said, what profit is there if we kill him? Let's sell him. So they sold him into slavery. He became, because he was a bright guy, I said he was dumb earlier, it was a joke. He was incredibly bright and blessed by God. Eventually God would rescue him. Eventually he would be taken out of there and eventually God would lift him up and he would rise all the way up to being second in command over all of, of Egypt. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. 
For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.